Chris Hahn here on the Aggressive Progressive Podcast. We don't just talk about progressive politics. We tell you how to win because that's what being an aggressive progressive is. Check us out every Tuesday. New episodes on Pandora, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't miss a week. The Aggressive Progressive Podcast with Chris Hahn. You are now listening to Bigfoot and Beyond, featuring the OG bad boys of Bigfoot, the Dr. Heckle and Mr. Jive of Squatchology, the Chip and Dale of Bigfoot, and I'm not talking about the cartoon. Please welcome your hosts, the Bigfoot celebrity couple, Biff Clobo, better known as Cliff Berrickman and James Bobo Pay. Hey, Cliff, how's it going? It's going all right, man. Just been real busy at the shop. Just got home, ready to do some podcasting. Yeah, I've been sitting on my ass for nine hours today, just answering emails. I got flooded after posting. I'm doing an expedition in uh, mid-November in Massachusetts with the Squatchusetts team. Oh, right on, right on. Mid-November? This Is that going to be snowy? No, no, it should be. It's high as mid-50s, low as mid-30s. Excellent. That's good squatching weather. It's also good because... The leaves are all gone by that point, pretty much. So you can see and work, and you can have a chance to actually film something. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's something that uh, I never really thought too much about. You know, because I live out here in the land of evergreens and whatever. But on finding Bigfoot traveling around everywhere during the winter, especially, it was always a pleasure to see that. Um, you know, the leaves have dropped, so you can see way back in there with the thermal imagers. Hey, Clip, I got a treat for us tonight. I got the great Thomas Shea out of Trimble County, Kentucky. We met him while we were filming Finding Bigfoot. And as far as you and I are concerned, he's the world's top living Bigfoot researcher. No one's gotten more footprint or hand casts. He's an excellent researcher. He's got copious notes and just an all-around great guy. It is a thrill to have Tom on. I admire this man. Uh, we, you know, we went out there to Northern Kentucky. We had a chance to go tracking with him. Um, this guy's down on his hands and knees, staring at impressions in the ground, trying to figure out what they are. It takes him an hour and a half, and he goes 50 yards. This guy is a tracker. He is a Bigfooter through and through and a model for every other Bigfooter alive today as far as data gathering and track gathering. So, Tom, I, I don't know if like if, you're, if your earphones are fitting your head now that we've talked so many good things about you, your head's probably swelling. But again, man, I truly admire your work, and I'm thrilled to have you on the podcast. Thanks a lot for coming on. I'm happy to be here. <laughs> You're going to be able to get out the door with that head swelled up after we talk about him like that. Well, the thing about Tom, and, and one of the things that impresses me the most about him, and always has impressed me, is that he could care less um, about you know fame or fortune or anything that goes with it, you know, all that sort of stuff. He's just doing it for the love of Bigfoot, um, and I think it's going to be a real treat for people, our, our listeners, um, to get to know him a little bit tonight. So, Tom, how about giving us a little uh, background on yourself and where you live and what got you into Bigfoot and what your first experiences are, and we'll just go from there. Well, I started out in 1987 when my first uh, uh, sighting. I was home on leave from the military, and I saw one going to town. And at that time, I didn't believe in no Bigfoot or hairy man running around. I was one of those type of guys that just laugh at you if you said something like that until I saw my first one. But I saw one standing on the side of the road. It was uh, almost getting toward dusk, and uh, uh, it was kind of warm out. 
it was Indian summer, and uh, I, I seen this. I thought it was a man. And I was trying to figure out why is he wearing a, co- a fur coat as warm as it was. So as I drove up by it, I actually slowed down and looked through the passenger window, and it was still standing on the side of the road. And as I passed, I got to turn around and check this out. I mean, I just can't believe what I'm seeing. So I turned around, and I parked off the side of the road, and I got out of the car, and I actually followed it down the field. It had already crossed the road going toward the Ohio River. And I got out in the field, and uh, this thing turned on me and just, like, grunted at me, you know? And I'm sitting there going, why am I here? <laughs> you know, why am I here? This thing is bigger than me. I mean. Did you uh, see it? That, were you seeing it at that point, sir, or did you just hear it out of the brush? Uh, I seen it through. I seen it totally. I mean, when you follow it down and start tracking it, do you see it again once you start tracking it, or did you just hear it grunt at you? No, I saw it. They were, they were, the, the field had already been cleared, and it was going across the field. And uh, like I said, I was behind it. I was not more than maybe 150 yards behind it. It was just walking? Yeah, like it had no care in the world. Did anyone else see it? Did any of their vehicles stop, or was it a backcountry road? It's it's At, at that time there, there wasn't much traffic. Uh in this county at that time, at 4.30 in the afternoon, everything shut down. Everybody uh-huh. was home, you know. <laughs> Even the gas station shut down. <laughs> you know? Love it. So, Tom, so 4.30 in the afternoon, Indian summer, so it's probably September or something like that. You had really good lighting then, didn't you? Yeah. Yeah, I did. I mean, like I said, I thought it was a man. And the reason I followed it, I still thought it was a man. Can you describe what it looked like? Oh, it's, oh, I would say around six and a half feet tall, really burly, really burly, uh, covered in hair. Now, it wasn't like you see in the Pacific Northwest, you know, the short hair and stuff. This had shaggy hair, and it looked like it was matted and had leaves and and uh, debris in the hair. You know, it wasn't clean cut. So it wasn't fresh out of the military at all then? No, <laughs> I was. <laughs> <laughs> I was home on leave. <laughs> What color was it, Tom? That in there was uh, a dark brown. Like same color head to toe? Yes. Was the hair longer in any place? And could you describe the face if you saw it? No, I really couldn't describe the face on that one. Uh, I just noticed that the arms were really long and the hair was was really ha- long on the body. It looked like, a, you know, old shaggy carpet. You know, it's been all the uh, yarn's been pulled on it. But just like that, I mean, it, it wasn't well, it wasn't well kept. It was as something was out in the woods for a long time. It always surprises me that the, uh, from the south, these really warm regions, how shaggy and hairy they are. Was you know, you hear reports from Alaska and Canada where they're short-haired, but then you'll hear from Kentucky southward of these real shaggy, thick-haired things look like they're made for the Arctic, but they'll they'll be out on a hundred-degree day. Yeah, me and me and a, uh, a professor was talking about that, and uh, he he said, you know, all reports that you know long hair. He was in the south. You'd think it'd be short hair, but he didn't understand why they had long hair. Probably just individual variation, I suppose. I mean, it's not like they have much control over it. They don't do much about it. After you, you're realizing, like, what the heck am I doing here? This thing just grunted at me. I'm following it. What in the world am I doing? What did you do then, and what was the aftermath of you seeing one of these things for the first time? Well, I actually turned the car back around and went back to my parents' house. <laughs> uh huh. And told my parents, and they're like that. And my dad asked me, he goes, have you been drinking? Goes, no, 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 no. 
And uh, I, he knew I was pretty well shook up. He wasn't a believer either. I didn't go nowhere that night. I was shook up pretty bad. Because one thing, I couldn't wrap around my mind what I saw. And that's when I started looking into it more, you know, find out what are these things, you know, start watching the shows and and got really in deep in it. And I, I got deep, really in deep in it after I got out of the service. Mm-hmm. Uh, started going uh, to other states and stuff like that. And it just kind of, at that time, there, nobody would talk to you. Nobody would even, you know, help you out. You was mostly on your own. It's a different world back in 1987 when you saw this. Now, when did you get out of the service and really dive in deep? 1994. 94. Okay. Wow. I was still doing, I was doing a little bit while I was in the service. And 1994 was the same year I started. So I bet you have a good jump on me with that 87 sighting. Excellent. And a lot of people, um, what the listeners would know too is Tom was actually hurt in a helicopter crash, I believe, and got a, a medical discharge. So you've been now able to focus since 94 full time on squatching, correct? Yes. That's, that's what I mostly do. Mm-hmm. Uh, I go out in the woods. You know, it's fun. I mean, it's a stress reliever for me. I've told other people about it. They said, how can this guy find so much stuff? I said, well, at a young age, he got hurt, and he's you know, on uh, disability, and he has the time and the, lives in the proper place and just puts in the effort to get these results. Well, in, in addition to that, you, you have a local network. You live right pretty much where they are within a few miles of a great research spot, and you have a great local network. Everybody knows you're the Bigfoot guy. So whenever anything happens, I would assume that they come to you, or if it doesn't come directly to you, they'll come to you shortly thereafter through other friends. Yes. Yeah, that's the secret to the situation. Uh, We have a Bigfoot researcher who lives very close to a place where a Bigfoot seems to frequent, and he has a good local network, and that's the magic combination. And of course, Tom loves it and wants to get out on scene every time he can. Yeah, great yeah. example. That was just two days ago, Tom. Tell him about that one. Two days ago, I, I got a call from a gentleman. And he's been, you know, sending me some stuff of what's happening on his property and everything like that. And uh, the other morning, uh, around seven o'clock, he called me up. And he goes, Tom, he goes, I, I got you to have to come out here. And I said, Why? He goes, I saw it. And I said, what did you see? And he, he said, I just got a glimpse of it. And I said, he goes, it, it was walking through the creek. So, you know, it's only like three miles from my house. So, you know, I was there in 20 minutes. Uh, so I get there and I meet him there at his place like that. And we walk down through there and he's telling me where it walked at there like that. Uh, all right. I said, I'm going to walk down here and check around and see what I can find. As soon as I get down there, I find a trackway going through the creek. There were about like five good prints there. Not really good, but one 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 was real good, and it was clear. I casted it, and it came out really good. I mean, this is so awesome. The print was so fresh. There was still the water was still muddy. Oh, Tom, I'm so envious of you, man. Good job. I mean, I was really excited. Uh, At first, I didn't think the cast would come out because it was water and stuff. Uh, well, I'm going to go ahead and cast it and see what happens. And when I did, and I pulled it out and turned it over, I got some of the best detail on where the ball of the foot is and where the edge of the toes are, the joints. Yeah. It came out really good. Oh, on, wow. On, on the last three toes. Really? Wow. Yeah. 
And you said something really important, I think, for a, for something that uh, listeners can take away. You weren't sure how it was going to turn out, but you did it anyway. And that's magic, and that's the key. Because um, I was just today in the shop in the in my in the museum, I was showing people that cast from uh, May of 2018 that uh, you passed on to me from Corn Creek. You know, mm -hmm. the one that the, with the, with the missing second digit, you know, just didn't register for some reason. Yeah. And I was po I was pointing out the details missing because uh, even my my first generation copy has dramatic lithics on it, and you can still see the the pinky toenail. And I I, I pointed out to the person Tom Shea who cast this didn't think it was that good and he almost didn't cast it but figured what the heck and you poured plaster in that and then we have this magical cast that uh, not only indicates the flexibility of the toes and the flexibility of the foot but it also has dramatic lithics and it also shows one and maybe two distinct toenails on it which are extremely rare in the data set and you you didn't even i don't know what i don't know if i should cast that but you went ahead and did it anyway and that is so important for people to listen to so there yeah. I go again, flattering you, Tom. Sorry. Yeah, that, <laughs> uh, you know, that was a good, good, good cast. You know, everybody says that's clear and, and really good print and everything. And I keep telling them it really wasn't that great. But after I casted it, the cast came out really great. Now, about a month ago, we had uh, an expedition. We had a lot of activity in this area and stuff like that. And when we left, two days later, the uh, owner of the property called me and said, uh, I want you to come down here. I got some footprints down here where y'all were camped at. Well, I thought, well, okay, I'll come down there and check it out. It might be ours, you know, because we all around in there. We get down there in the creek, and in the creek, in the middle of this creek, there's this footprint where it had stepped, and it was full of water. You could see the toes. And it kind of looked canine at first. Well, I think I spoke to you about it. Yeah, you sent me pictures of that. It was really interesting. I happened to be with Dr. Meldrum at the time, and we kind of passed it back and forth. Well, I went ahead and casted that in that water. To my surprise, where it had stepped in that nice soft silt, the ball of the foot and part of the heel went all the way down. And when it pulled up, it suctioned. And I got the casting of the, of the bottom of the foot where it went all the way down into the, hard, uh, the more stable mud. It's really awesome. You sent me photographs of the cast, and it does look extremely impressive. If there's a will, there's a way. You gave us some great advice, Tom, and I'm sure the listeners would like to hear this too, about you discovered pouring salt into the mix when in a wet, uh, if you're casting a real wet environment, like there's a little standing water in the bottom or something like that. You mix in some, what is it, rock salt, and it dries out the cast better? Well, I don't even use that no more. I changed the formula. It's uh, four ounces of hydrocal to uh, one pound of plaster. And when you pour it in, what it does, the, the hydrocal, what it does with the plaster, it forces the water out. Uh, you've done a lot of experimenting, man, like a lot. Uh, these last two casts are done that way. And they're really good detail. I didn't think they would, but after I did it, perfect. You know, I'm set. I'm out there at this one track, and I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm almost waist deep in water and mud and uh, trying to keep this track from being damaged. And uh, I finally get it poured and everything like that. And it gets hard enough and I pull it out and looked on the bottom like that. I mean, I was, I was tickled to death. I mean, uh, I'll, I'll be bringing these to Crypticon for everybody to look at. When you hear Tom talk like that, like he's amazed, he's, you know, excited, he's stoked. If you've been with him 
we've been, uh, Clip and I have both been to his house out in his shop where he has hundreds of casts. And like, we're just sitting there drooling over these things going, oh my God, look at this, look at this. And he's just totally nonplus, just, yeah, like ho-hum, ho-hum. For, so for Tom to get excited on something, that means it's truly exceptional. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, hey, Tom, I was wondering, because I, when we were listening to you just, you know, 10 minutes ago or whatever, talking about your first encounter with the Sasquatch back in 87, when did you start casting footprints? I don't think I know that about you. I started practicing uh, casting uh, footprints, uh, I think it was 1990. And what was the circumstances around it? Was it a recent sighting or did you stumble upon them yourself or what? Oh, in some of the books uh, that I have read, I've seen uh you know, people holding the cast that they went out there with, you know, brought back. And I thought, well, this would be cool. If I did find some evidence, I could cast it and bring it back. And I'd have, you know, evidence. And uh, that's when I really started playing around with cat plaster. So that uh, first time you were looking at a print in the ground, like you're there, you know you're looking at a Bigfoot print, or maybe you didn't know, I don't know. But, like, what was going through your mind? Like, can you bring us back to that spot and, like, kind of share that with us? The first one, it looked like a depression. And I looked at it, you know, like, like you said, I get on my hands and knees, and I get down there and I, I look, I blow it, you know. I try to clean it out as best I can to get a good detail. And the only way that you can get that is uh, with the casting. And it tells a story. You saw that cast? I know you've given a lot away. Oh, I gave copies away, but I, no, I still got all my cast. I got that very first cast. Oh, that's awesome. That's all. That's history. Yeah. Cause I mean, whether you, whether you like it or not, Tom, I mean, you stand amongst the upper echelon of all Bigfooters. I mean, you're right there with Bob Titmus and Paul Freeman and Roger Patterson with your accomplishments. I mean, that that's a truly a piece of history. That's a, that's, that's really freaking cool. <laughs> yeah. Can you tell us about my favorite Bigfoot? The one that you got the best cast I've seen of hands and feet, Goliath. Mm-hmm. Tell us about him and what experiences you've had with him and what you know about him. Well, the first time uh, I found his prints, it was along the side of a pond. It looked like it had stopped it by the pond there and, and squatted down and put one hand down and was drinking out of the pond. That's what we think. But I, I casted the prints. This thing has to be it's massive when I first saw the prints. Even though it was in mud, <clears throat> it's a little exaggeration on the print. Thing, this this thing has to be pretty, pretty good size. So I casted those. Now, a couple days later, I was across the road in the, our research area, adjacent from this area, and I'm riding my four-wheeler down this access trail, and I'm looking on both sides to see if anything's across the road, and lo and behold, I find a trackway, fresh. And... Uh, I'm getting down there. I get off the four-wheeler, I get down there, and I start measuring. I start looking at things, you know, walking all the way back to where the first print was. It was coming up the hill. So I got in the back of my four-wheeler. Mind you, I pack a pistol with me when I go someplace. When I'm casting, I usually take my pistol off and hang it on my four-wheeler. It gets in the way, you know. I get all my casting material, my water and stuff, and I get down there and I start mixing my stuff up and I'm pouring everything nice and easy and everything like that on these prints. And about that time, I'm sitting there going, Lord, does that one stinks. I'm not thinking really clear. I'm excited about getting these casts. And uh, 
I happened to look up, and uh, not more than 30 feet away from me, it was, you know, my four-wheeler was between me and him, 30 feet. Now, here I am on my knees with plaster all over my hands and stuff like that. My handgun's over on my, my four-wheeler, you know, that's about 15 feet away from me, and this thing is staring at me. I call him Goliath because we measured from where his head was on a branch that we I could see, and we're looking at it about maybe eight and a half, nine foot. Through the hair, you could see the muscles in the chest. He, he was massive. He was bigger than me. <laughs> so what did you do? I mean, you're staring at this thing 30 feet away from you. That's, that's barely across the road, man. I mean, that, that's really close. You must have been freaked out of your mind, right? I didn't move a muscle. <laughs> <laughs> I think the only muscle in my body that would have moved are my sphincters. Yeah. Well, I'm sitting there. I mean, I'm actually sitting there. I'm thinking, well, do I make a dash for the four-wheeler and get my handgun, or do I just sit here? <laughs> and I'm looking at it, and it's looking at me, and I, I think I'm just going to sit here. Good idea. Yeah. And, and we looked. I mean, it, it seemed like it was a long time because it was, I mean, I don't know how you would say it. Uh, I had some fear. I also had some, you know, excitement. You know, uh, here I am. I got to see this thing up close. And I saw its face. It was more human than it was monkey-wise. How so? Can you can you help us out with that? What do you mean by that? <clears throat> okay, the face was 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 kind of light dark. You know, not real dark, but light grayish. Uh, had a flat nose. Didn't have a gorilla type nose. Had had a regular flat nose. There was no hair on the front of the face, just around. And I remember looking at its eyes, and it, it appeared soulless. Huh. Could you see whites of the eyes, or just was it dark, or how would dark. you describe it? It was just dark. Mm. I don't know if that was just me through the fear. Bo Burns is, is making a, making one. Oh, he made my uh, my uh, Bigfoot model that I have in the museum. Yeah, and he's making a Goliath. And he sent wow. me a couple of pictures of what he had done so far. And I tell you what, when I looked at the pictures, my heart raced. I was actually reliving what I saw. He, he captured it perfectly. Oh, my gosh. Well, yeah, you know, I've had, um, since we opened the museum a month ago, I've had more than one um, close witness, you know, close encounter witness drop by and, like, look at my Bigfoot model in there that Bo made. It's fantastic. And go, yeah, you know what? That's the face I saw. And they may have a little criticism, like, you know, only the eyes were a little bit more deeply set or the skin was a slightly different color. But by and large, all the really close witnesses say that, yeah, that's it. That He did it. Yeah, Bo Bruns, I think, is the best creature replica maker out there today. So fantastic. I can't wait to see what he's making for you. Well, I, I sent him a sketch. Right after, right after that, I sketched what I saw, the face and everything. Really? Wow, I and, didn't know that. Yeah, I, it's in my notes. And I sent him a copy, and uh, he goes, the first thing he says, he goes, it did have a, yeah, eyebrows, didn't it? I said, well, yeah. Uh, on those other, earlier ones, he didn't put eyebrows on. Uh-huh. Because that's the first thing he asked me. He goes, you put eyebrows on. I said, you had eyebrows. <laughs> I could see that. I mean, I could see the face. Like I said, it, it, it appeared soulless, but you know, I think that was my fear. Yeah. But while we were sitting there, and I was deciding, I was just going to sit there. If it come at me, it come at me. I mean, there's nothing I can do. 
It slowly just lifted its head up, like sniffed the air, took a grunt, and walked right on down the ridge. And what did you do? Well, I had a flip phone, and this is going to be kind of funny. I had a flip phone, and I'm, just, I'm still excited and still scared. You know, I pick it out, and I start filming. And on, the, on, on, this, on this film, you can hear me going, hey, I got it. I got the picture. You know, <laughs> look at this, guys. It's real, you know. Well, I get home, I download the thing on the computer and stuff like that, and my wife knows I'm excited. And she goes, you probably got something. I said, I got him on the film. Well, through the excitement and, and everything like that, I had, when I hit the play button, I hit the reverse button, I filmed myself. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I'm only half half laughing. The other half of me is crying. Oh, oh I my was, gosh! Oh, I mean, uh, <clears throat> my wife will tell you, I cried. I really did. I'm a grown man, and I cried. Oh, blame you! Because I had the best evidence right there. I had it on video. I teared up when you told me about it. <laughs> but you're a sensitive guy, Bubba. When it comes to squatch, I am. Yeah, I mean. That's a, I was with a Mel Scahan one time when we were down in the Redwoods and it was, we were walking in the pitch black and all of a sudden we had these uh, squatch trying to go crazy. Some of the best vocalizations I've ever heard, like hundred feet from us. And Mel's like, I got it. I got it. You know, we're listening to it record or we're listening to it and recording it. And we get, you know, we, we, it stops after five minutes. I mean, just five straight minutes of just the nuttiest stuff you've ever heard. Would have, would have been definitely one of the best recordings ever. And we get back and he's like, Oh, in the dark, I hit the wrong button, and we didn't get it. Oh. But, yeah, it happens. It's for squatching. When you're that excited and that nervous, stuff happens for sure. Yeah, I mean, everybody's heard of Murphy's Law. You know, if something can go wrong, it will go wrong, Murphy's Law. Um, and actually, uh, that's why um, we named the Bigfoot model in the museum Murphy. <laughs> yeah, so, Tom, tell us about those Goliath handprints you got. Oh, yeah, yeah. Before you do, Tom, just let me set this up because um, there are so few handprints on record. There's maybe a dozen or 15 or something. Um, and, you know, and you have gotten half of them or, you know, almost half of these things. Um, and it turns out that now we can attach them finally to the feet of a Sasquatch. Um, yeah, like back in 1970, we have the handprints of the um, Bosberg individual, the so-called cripple foot or whatever. In 1994, Paul Freeman has uh, four footprints associated with a handprint. And now we have more of the same from Trimble County, Kentucky, thanks to you, Tom. So I, I would love to hear more about that. Well, like I said, I mean, he was, we, we believe he, he stopped at a pond and used one hand to brace himself while he took a drink. That's what we're thinking. That's how I got the, the uh, handprint. When I cast it and everything like that, I mean, I told you the same thing. Like, it didn't come out that great. There's a little exaggeration in it, but it's it's massive. It's astonishing. Yeah, it really is astonishing. Uh, it took my breath away. Well, the same way as the footprint. I mean, there's a little exaggeration. I think it's, what, 21 inches? But uh, we cut it down to, what, about like 19 for the slide? But now the exaggeration, I, I would like to clarify that for our listeners in case they don't understand. Um, when, he, when he says exaggeration, essentially what he's saying is that the, the shape of the cast is the shape of the damage done to the ground by the foot or the hand or whatever it is. You know, because you can put your hand in the ground 
and lift it up. And that would be more true to the size of your hand, say. But if you put your hand in your ground and, say, moved around and shift your weight on top of it and, you know, kind of pushed it around, it would stretch out the impressions in various directions, thus making the fingers wider or the palm bigger, that sort of thing. So it's not a purposeful or even accidental exaggeration per se. It's just that, you know, the hand print or the foot and footprint you know, slides and slips and goes this direction or that direction, increasing the length or the width of the impression itself in the ground. So that's, I just wanted to clarify that. The clip always says it's not, you're not casting the foot, you're casting the damage to the ground, the substrate that the foot made. Well, and a lot of these casts, like, like that really big Goliath print that you got in, oh, what is it? 2014 at some mm -hmm. point in August, I think. Um, you know, it, it looks huge. Everybody's jaw drops when they see it. But Goliath's prints are actually about 15 or 16 inches long, like his feet are. Um, yeah. it, it, but this print itself is like 18 or 20 inches because it slid into the ground and it pressed really, really deep. And the toes like actually stopped it from going forward. It almost served as an anchor in a way. Um, but yeah, so it's it is exaggerated in length, but it's not exaggerated by a person, which is what I wanted to clarify. You know, it's, it, it is elongated because it's sliding, <laughs> slipping and whatnot. So I cast it like I see it. And uh, when y'all came out here, when you filmed, there's still dirt on them. <laughs> yeah, you know? yeah. Yeah. I just never did ever think about cleaning them off. You know, I'd blow them off and up or, you know, some of it come off. And <clears throat> I just left it on there because if anybody said anything, you know, well, you, you messed with it. And that's the way it come out of the ground. So, Tom, by any chance, since you got a good look at Goliath, what do you think the chances are that Goliath is the same animal you saw back in 1987? Because aren't we talking about the same general area here? Within 15 miles. Okay, within 15. That's actually not too far for a Bigfoot. But So do you think it might have been the same one, or you think it might have been just one of the consort? You know, like the, the con, what is the word? Consort? Am I saying that right? I don't even know what the right word is, but you think it's like just like one of the local Bigfoots, or you think that was Goliath himself, or what do you think? No, no, no. I, it was it, the, the first one I saw was was different. Uh, okay. Okay, it was different. This the Goliath. Uh, there's a couple of people have seen it too, and they have described it to me, and mm -hmm. they said this thing is big. Yeah, yeah, Charlie Raymond gave me a witness um, drawing or maybe, you know, an artistic rendition of a witness description of Goliath, of this thing standing right in front of a stop sign. You've probably seen the artwork. Yeah. I don't know if you have or not. Yeah, so that's Goliath. That's essentially what we're looking at here. Yeah. Could you guess a weight on it? I'd say, you know, close to 800 pounds, maybe. I don't really want to go up to any higher than that because if I do, then somebody's going to, you know, well, how do you guess that and everything like that? Well, I'm just guessing 800 pounds. But you have to actually see this thing. And if you ever see it, you're going to swear it's, it's, it weighs more than what, it, what, you, what I'm saying. Right. Because when we looking at a Cliff's statue of Murphy in his museum, it's seven and a half feet tall. But when you look at the bulk on it, we all, everyone there said 750, 800 pounds. And that thing's a good foot, foot and a half shorter than Goliath. Yeah. So, Tom, you, you've offered the Bigfoot research community a, a very rare thing, which is a lot of casts, or at least numerous casts. I mean, you have a lot, but um, there are other situations where there are some casts from one particular area. 
Um, and not exactly that same area, you know, you're the research site, which you've been kind enough to take Bobo and I to, but you know, for five miles or whatever in every direction or 10 miles in every direction. And when you have a situation like that, when you have multiple casts from the same general area, you're nearly always looking at the same Bigfoots again and again and again. And so based on that idea, that hypothesis of mine, because of the rarity of the species and whatnot, how many Bigfoots do you think there are in your general area, like within maybe 20 miles of uh, the, your research site? With the uh, the new cast I got, I would say there's a total of five adults. Plus, I did get one juvenile cramp. So yeah, I'm, I'm saying six, maybe. Six. So maybe five adults or, you know, a few adults and sub-adults or something, five, you know, adultish ones and one definite juvenile. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Interesting. Have you received sighting reports of the juvenile? Uh, somebody said they saw a monkey. Oh, that might be it. <laughs> yeah, that was, yeah. But uh, I really can't take the, the word of the person's word really that great because, uh, it's not too reliable, mm -hmm. but he did say he saw a monkey, and I went out and looked at the place, and I'm like, I didn't find no signs of anything being there, nothing like that. So, I see. Uh, that was the only only time I ever heard anybody say anything about something small. When you found the juvenile print, was it the only print in the area, or were there other footprints of a larger individual in the area as well, like maybe the mother or something? Well, the ground was actually half frozen. And it, where this particular spot was, was up and around where the sun was coming down on this ridge. And, the, and the, it had just thawed quite a bit back there on top. And uh, that was the only print that we all could find. And what led you to that spot? We was walking down the access road. It, it was following the access road. So you found the trail of the tracks. You found the trackway. And then mm -hmm. you found a, a cast or a print good enough to cast. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, it is impressive. I've uh, You were kind enough to lend me the original to make a copy of. And uh, yeah, that is a very impressive cast. I mean, there, all the toe detail isn't there, but you can clearly see the line of toes. You can see them. You know, there's no separation necessarily. But I'm always impressed with how well it conforms to the other um, the specimens in the data set. And, and it is right there. As far as length and width ratio, it is right there. And it's, it, I just find it to be so impressive. Which is why your situation is so important, I think, um, because, you know, if you've heard me speak lately, I've been on my soapbox lately about how we need to get away from the stories. Um, we need to get to the evidence itself. And the footprint track evidence is the most important kind of evidence, even though it's really cool to have video evidence. That would be cooler, but you don't learn as much about the animals as you would through uh, footprints. Because by tracking where they go and when they go there, maybe you can find out why they go there. And then a situation like this where there's, oh, there's a juvenile track around. That gives us a peek into their social structure as well, like how they live. Like I'm way past if they live. I, I, now I want to know how they live. And that's one of the, the, the most uh, important things about the footprint track evidence is that it gives us a glimpse into that. And there's your situation in northern Kentucky. There's the Blue Mountain evidence collected by, you know, Paul Freeman, Wes Summerlin, Dar Addington, Bill Lowry, Grover Krantz, all those people. And there's Bluff Creek. But outside of that, there's not a whole lot of uh, opportunity 
to track individuals over time. Oh, actually, the, the Lori Jo Hamilton stuff on the um, Olympic Peninsula. That's another addition to that. But yeah, we have so we have like, what, four, maybe five situations like this where we can actually get a glimpse into their social structure, which is what partly what makes your evidence so valuable to uh, the learning about Sasquatches. I don't really go into the stores. You know, if I get a report and somebody tells me something, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll put it out there. But I'm usually out there in the woods. I'm trying to collect evidence. And uh, we come up with some of the wildest things to do, uh, just like the Nutella jar. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's a first in all Bigfoot history. Why don't you fill me in on that? Like, tell that story. I think people would get a kick out of it. Well, uh, one of the members of my group, uh, Steve Cornell, uh, he calls me up and he tells me, he goes, I got this idea of a PVC pipe, big four inch. He goes, put some sandpaper in it, hook a chain on it, hide it in a tree and put jar of peanut butter in it maybe we can get some hair and uh i said let me toss it around a little bit so i tossed it around for a couple of days and i told him i called him up and said let's do it he gets it built and stuff like that and brings a jar of uh, nutella out and we get it in a tree and we document it and everything like that so we come back and i noticed that uh it was uphill you know this was on a hillside where the tree was but the jar was uphill so it had fallen out of the trap, or the trap had been disturbed, or? Uh, well, the tra- it, it was taken out of the trap. Because if it fell out, it would have rolled downhill, but it was, you know, a jar don't roll uphill. Not well. No. <laughs> so I went over and picked it up, and I noticed that it, the top had been messed with. So I opened the top up and looked down in it, and, it, you know, something had reached in there and scooped out a bunch of that Nutella. Yeah, I'm sitting there looking at, hmm, I think I'll take this home and check it out some more. Maybe I, you know, I get some hair or something in there or maybe see what it is. So I throw it on the cooler in the back of my four-wheeler. When I get home, I pull it out and I noticed that it got hard, you know, to be in that icebox. I looked at my wife and I said, I'm going to uh, freeze this. And I'm going to try to cast it. So I froze it. And next day I got up. Opened it up. Yeah, it's good and hard. So I went out there and mixed up me some plaster, poured in it. You know, it's set up and cured. And uh, to get it out of the jar, I had to cut the jar. That was a mess. <laughs> <laughs> that was a mess. I think it was there was still Nutella on it when I gave it to you. <laughs> yeah, you were kind enough to give me the original, man. And that that was what a a, a special gift that was. And I'm so yeah. pleased about that. Thank you. Yeah, uh, I didn't think really too much about it, you know, being special or anything. I just wanted to cast it because, you know, I wanted to see what what it was that was in the jar. And when I pulled it out and cleaned it up just a little bit, I could tell it was fingers. You know, when, when you look at the cast itself uh, that uh, resulted from this, you can actually see uh, the, the nails on the thing. You can see uh, two of the fingers have very clear impressions that that are obviously fingernails. Are they? They're not tremendously big, but they're big fingers. I mean, they're not like so big that it couldn't be a human or something like that. You know, if I were to play the Renaissayer here, um, but uh, uh, it's so interesting because it was how high up in the tree was it again? Eight feet, ten feet, or something? Uh, I'm six foot. Uh, it was eight foot. It was eight feet up in the tree. Yeah. yeah, and obviously it couldn't have been anything else but a human or a Sasquatch to leave prints like that, like impressions in the Nutella. 
Um, and it, it couldn't have been a human because every human loves Datella. And it would have finished the entire jar. Oh, I don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, never mind. You inhuman monster. No, I'm just kidding, of course. That, that, that was a joke anyway, but yeah. Yeah. That's <laughs> Yeah, it was really, really neat, and I, I, I don't think I've, I haven't talked to you in a, in a while now, Tom. I um, apologize for that. But um, one of the things my wife did, um, she, uh, we went out and got it, uh, you know, for the museum because it's going to be on display in the museum um, in October when we open up the exhibit halls here. Um, but uh, we went out and got a Nutella jar, um, and by the way, they don't make glass ones like that anymore. We had to go with a plastic one. But uh, we emptied the Nutella out of the jar. And then my wife, who does special effects stuff or whatever, she inserted the uh, the cast, not the original, but one of the copies I made, into the Nutella to replicate what the finger impressions looked like when you first saw it. So we're going to have that in the museum so people can understand what you were looking at when you picked up the Nutella jar and said, oh, those are finger marks, you know, and threw that in the cooler, which eventually led to Bigfoot history being made. That's super. Yeah, it's cool, you know, because I, I don't know. I mean, Bobo can probably chime in on this. Like, how many times, Bobs, or, or you too, Tom? How many times have you heard some Bigfoot researcher come back and say, "Oh, they love they love peanut butter. They're, I can see the finger marks in the peanut butter," but have nothing at all to show for it except for a story? Does you know? Yeah, that, right. It, it happens frequently, you know, or frequently enough that it's annoying because they come back with nothing. But here we go. The first time in all Bigfoot history, uh, uh, somebody used their brain and brought something back. It, it's just, you know, it's such a small thing for you, Tom. But like, I mean, I don't know how many times you might have heard this 20, 30 times in your life. But you're the only one to ever bring something back to show us. And, and that's not really all me either, too. Steve Cornell had a lot to do with that, too. Oh, of course. You know, we're, we all work on teams, right? And Steve is yeah. a good guy. I, I know that... Uh, he sat front row center when when I was talking about um, the the Nutella cast in the Ohio Bigfoot conference. He was in front row center, and he was it looked like he was over the moon. He was pretty happy about that. Yeah, that's one thing I like to always do. Uh, you know, if somebody's with me doing things with me. I like to give them credit too. If we get results. Yeah, because it's not all about you, and that's one of the admirable things. You know, Bobo and I are here singing your praises, but I have a feeling you couldn't give a damn. So. <laughs> Other than like you like Bobo and I, and it's good to hear, but you know, it's not like you're out there seeking attention. So, no, no, no. Uh, somebody said something the other day about that. You know, you think you're all that, and I can't, what are you talking about? <laughs> you know, well, I heard that uh, there was someplace, I think it was Michigan, he was talking, Chip was talking about me or something like that. Uh, and he said something, and I said, well, he's really laying it on thick, ain't he? <laughs> <laughs> it's all well, deserved. Tom, it, it is, you know. And next time Tom, somebody comes to you and says, "Boy, Tom, you really think you're something," and you go, "Well, I mean, I, I don't, but Cliff does, and Bobo does." Yeah, <laughs> sure that. You know, it, it, I got a good crew working with me right now when we go out. Yeah, and, tell us about them. Tell us about them. Uh, I got I got a BFRO uh, investigator with us, uh, Dusty Ruth. Uh, I got Big John. He's out of Indiana. He's an uh, independent. Jan L. Now, let me tell you something. This, this girl, she's going to be a researcher. She goes out on our expedition. She brings snacks. She brings everything else for these creatures. She puts out bed sheets, try to get prints all on them, you know, something to walk on it. Oh, like the mattress prints. Right. And she's, she's doing all that. I mean, 
the last time she went out, she did that. I said, did you document it? Did you take pictures of what you did? And said, no, she, said, she went back and took pictures. And I said, you always take pictures. I said, because when you go back, I said, if it's disturbed, you can uh, take pictures of that, you know, and to compare it with what you did a week ago or a couple hours ago to now. It's always good to have, uh, you know, document all your, everything you do. Yeah, before and after, because mm-hmm. a Sasquatch moving through might do something, but it might be so subtle that unless you look closely, you may not notice. Right. You know, and uh, there's two other guys, uh, uh, Ben Taylor and Rich Taylor. They were they're, they're with us, uh, and it, it, these guys are really really nice guys. And uh, <clears throat> Kevin Winstead, he's out of Mich- Michigan. Uh, they come, he comes down a lot. Tammy Bell, she comes down out of Iowa. I think uh, I sent her to you with a cast. I did speak to her, and that cast is now in my garage, and I'm layering latex on it as you know as we speak. They're about a week or so until I can make a mold of that thing, and I can send the original back to her. Like back in June, June 14th. Now, we had an incident that happened to us, five of us. We watched one belly crawl up to us on our base, to our base camp, to us. <clears throat> and we was watching it on the thermals. And I was videotaping it. And let me tell you something, we were not prepared. We didn't have our equipment tuned right, nothing. My night vision camera was the... the uh, the infrared was so high on it, all you got was a big white spot, but you could see it moving. Everybody else was trying to get it, and we just wasn't prepared. But we watched it, and it moved from 200 yards, Ellis Creek bed, belly crawled all the way over to almost where we was at. And we was watching it. I mean, it got so close, we could see it. This went on for about two hours. It watched us. We watched it. Then suddenly it disappeared. We uh, The next morning, we got out, we did our, we checked everything out. Now, looking through a thermal at nighttime, your perception of, of distance is all. This thing was only two car lengths away from us. Whoa. Whoa. We, we was watching as two car lengths. But the, the, the odd thing is, all of us, we didn't hear its twig snap. We didn't hear nothing. I mean, it, it moved like a ninja. Did you find any impressions where it had been crawling the next day when you went to go check out the area? There was some, but the ground was hard. Uh, But we did find, it was a couple of impressions. Now, I did cast what looked like fur. Oh. Where it went across the the creek on a sandbar. Yeah. It looked like a shaggy arm where it had scooped. Now, I did cast that. And what it was crawling across the creek bed at that time, like, yeah, it was down low. Okay, interesting. So, what do you what what body part do you think made it? What an elbow or a wrist or a knee or what do you think? Uh, it might have been it might have been a part of the leg, you know, the thigh, not thigh, but okay, the or maybe the arm. Uh, I'm not really sure, but I casted it anyway because. It happened in the same area. It could be. It couldn't be nothing. But I went ahead and did it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when in doubt, cast it. That's why you're successful. Part of it, at least. You know, it, it, some people come out and say, you know, I casted the butt cheeks of one. <laughs> you yeah. Know? Yeah. So you know, so I cast it. You know, maybe it is. Maybe it ain't. You know, but it's in my collection. You know, it's written on the back what it is. Nice. Well, you know, that brings up something that maybe it is, maybe it isn't thing. Well, well tell, tell us about some of the hoaxes, maybe, that you've 
had to face because you're a prominent researcher in your community. Everybody knows, go to Tom for Bigfoot stuff. You certainly have come across some hoaxes over time. Oh, yes. One of them was uh, when you all was here in Trimble County filming with us. Gentleman called me up and said uh, something walked through my garden. And uh, I went out there and I looked at it. The first thing I did was look at it. And I said, well, I said, those are uh, plywood cutouts because it was just flat. I mean, you could tell it was fake. Yeah. Take about one or two seconds to figure that out, probably. <laughs> I mean, first when I first saw it, I, you know, I told him, I said, those are fake. He got all mad and everything like that. And so uh, I think we all, I left and I met you all. And we did a film, part of the, took you to a place. And uh, later on that evening, uh, his friend, who's a friend of mine, come to me and with him, and he told me what he did. And he gave me the, the, the cutouts, the, car, the the plywood cutouts. Hmm. I asked him, I said, why? He goes, well, I thought maybe I might be able to get on TV. Ah, uh, yeah. I said, well, I said, this is the cutting. Then there's, there's that one print that I found, like, all around the, uh, the county in certain spots. Uh, it has the... Uh, the one toe, it's way off. Oh, you you showed me that print, didn't you? Are you talking about that one, that real peculiar one at the... Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, that... Yeah, yeah. That yeah. doesn't make any anatomical sense. Well, I found out who did it. And he, he was doing that to, uh, for a joke. Huh. Not funny. No. No, that's that's worse than my jokes. Let's <laughs> not go that far. <laughs> You showed me a stack of your notes. You had how many spiral notebooks full of notes over how many years? Like you had thousands of pages. It looked like I started documenting everything about nineteen, oh, about nineteen ninety. Did you have like eighty spiral notebooks full of notes? Oh yeah, I'm sitting here right now looking at notes that I need to put into my journals. <laughs> <laughs> you know, where I was out the other day casting i had uh some loose paper and i'm jotting everything down because i didn't take my journal with me and i'm jotting everything down uh the size how deep it was uh weather conditions and what happened and, and everything you know and uh i come back home and i put it in my book i document everything who i talk to who i go out with if nothing happens i put down there nothing happened <laughs> yeah, you know. it's, yeah, negative data. That that's important data as well. So for folks at home, the, the the spiral notebooks you use in school, like eighty pages, and what you you had to like, what almost a hundred of them, right, Tom? We got a little more than hundred of them. And that's eight thousand <laughs> pages. That's eight thousand pages right there. Yeah, Tom's one of the best there is ever, you know, by far. And I go, why would you say that? It's because of this. Yeah, the casts are impressive. Um, obviously he's got, I don't even know how many casts you have, 150, 200. I have no idea how many you've pulled. You probably don't even either. But just the fact that you have so many spiral notebooks full of information that you've been collecting, basically for no reason other than the fact that one should collect it. Um, you're not sharing. I mean, it's, it's not like you wouldn't share, but like it's not out there necessarily. It's just for uh, for history's sake. Um, and, and that's it, man. Like your success rate is amazing. The number of casts and the amount of data that you've collected is astonishing, um, at, which puts you in the ranks 
equal or higher, you know, than the early researchers at Titmus and all those other folks, you know, no one does this. You're a model. So that's, I don't know. That's what I tell a lot of researchers. I said, document everything. I said, also, all researchers need to slow down. You just need, don't need to go barging into an area. You destroy evidence that way. Yeah. And I usually tell them, I said, treat your area as it is a crime scene. And it might take longer to do things. I said, just slow down, look real good at everything. Uh, you just can't go in and, and, and run five miles and expect you're going to run into something. Now, it seems that maybe most of your success has come from following up on other people's reports. Um, but oftentimes you go into the area, your research area, and just see what's going on. Um, can you tell us about some of the techniques that you like to employ when you're just going in and there's not necessarily been a sighting in the last day or two? You're just going in to see who's home. What kind of stuff do you like to do? Well, the, the first thing I do is I'll go in and go in as deep as I can, and I'll find me a nice log or something, and I'll sit there, and I'll just sit and watch and listen because these things are curious. They're gonna, they're, you know, animals are curious. You even get deer will walk up on you if you're sitting out there. You know, if you sit out there, every once in a while you might get a wood knock, uh, maybe a vocal. We've, we've that's happened. Well, we just sat out there. It happened. Uh, we don't use the, the direct approach of going out and, and chasing something. Uh, on our research, we go in and put a base camp up. We sit in you know base camp. Mostly like five of us will sit at the edge of base camp under canopies watching the area. We got our parabolics. We got our audios going. Uh, Everybody else back, you know, back by the fire and stuff, you know, they're talking stuff, but there's five of us that are got our attention to the woods and our surroundings. And we hear something, you know, we signal to everybody else, be quiet, you know, listen. It works. And it's just like, you know, a month ago, that one crawled up on our base camp. All we did was sit there. We didn't go out in the woods and walk around. Now you're not sitting around quiet, right? You're just talking. You're basically camping, right? Yeah, right. Camping, talking, telling jokes, you know, making a little noise. Well, we'll cook, you know, we got, we cooked our food. It's just a bunch of friends getting together. And there's a couple of us that are, are hardcore. Uh, when we go out, we're, we're trying to collect the data. Everybody else is just sitting around talking and stuff while we're listening. And, uh, we get some really good data. Yeah, you know, I, I think that um, a lot of Bigfoot research, is, and frankly, I think finding Bigfoot is partly to blame for this. Um, I, I think that a lot of researchers try too hard. Uh, they, they go out there and knock and bang and, you know, scream and yell and walk around and do all that sort of stuff. Um, it, they don't try the passive approach, which is, I think, just as effective, if not more effective than anything else that one can do. Um, just going out and camping, camping with a purpose is what Bigfoot is, you know, go camping with your friends, you know, and relax, run a fire and have some people in the outskirts. Like you say, just kind of checking the area out. You don't need to be so, I guess, for lack of a better term, aggressive, like we were on finding Bigfoot, uh, finding Bigfoot. We were forced to do that. We had, we had, you know, one night in an area and maybe a couple other nights, a couple of nights later, maybe in the same area, maybe somewhere else. We have one night to get in and out and everybody in, you know, there's a million people watching and we've got to get something. Yeah. It works, 
but it's not not the not the most effective way to do it if you're visiting the same area again and again and again. Exactly. Yeah. If for a one night stand or a one weekend stand, you're selling a little fling, go big, go loud. But if you're trying to work it, like if you're going to live around there or you're going to repeatedly go there, I've had way better luck the last few years just just camping and hiking. Yeah. Exactly. You know, like it's like if you want to marry the woman, you, you know, you got to go go gently. Right, and it's the same thing with the research area. Yeah, marriages that you get you get married that same weekend doesn't usually last too long. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Hey Tom, so I mean, you've got you've got thousands. I mean, you've got ten thousand plus pages of of research notes. What patterns have you noticed? Like what behavioral patterns? Like time of year, um, dietary, and also, can you mention any scat you found that might Give you more insight into these things, uh, behavior and lifestyle. Well, uh, yeah, I went through my notes and, and, and compiled a, a little bit of a thing. Uh, in the areas of re- where I where we get a lot of activity at certain times of the year, like this time of year here in Kentucky, we're considered in a drought area. All the plant life is uh, is dying. Uh, trees are turning because it's too dry. So. All the animals are going to hang close to water sources, streams, lakes, ponds, creeks, rivers. So most of your sightings will be along creeks this time of year. Now, that's from uh, here in Kentucky. It's from uh, late August till early November. Now, early November to about March, they'll move up more closer to human habitation around farms and stuff. You catch them uh, around dairy farms, uh, livestock. You know, there's a lot of grain, a lot of uh, sweet feed and stuff like that that, are, that these farmers use. Uh, how clean does the water have to be for them to be drinking there? Have you noticed, like, are they drinking out of, like, cattle ponds or cattle troughs, or does it have to be more fresh, clear water? It can't be stagnant. It has to be kind of like fresh water. I do know that. If you get a stagnant pool, nothing, it won't, you know, they won't even come around it, not even at the creeks. Especially like where uh, I got that one that was half in water and stuff like that in the mud. Uh, that, that pool next to it was stagnant. Now, on up, when I went on up a little further up the creek, uh, there was fresh water. And that's where there was a lot of tracks up around that fresh water. Have you found um, any signs of foraging? Like, what kind of food items have you observed uh, sign of them going after? We've had a couple of cattle mutilations here. That's unexplainable. You think they're, they're responsible for the cattle? Something is. Uh, we found one halfway in a tree. A cow? Yeah. Halfway up a tree? How high are you talking? Uh, we're talking about six foot. And a, like a one-ton cow, or however big they are? A yearling. Oh, a yearling. And was, yeah. what was the damage on it? Oh, uh, everything on the inside was tore out. Her legs were broke off. Wow. And what, what part was up, like the whole thing was up in a tree, or was it hanging off? Or what, tell me more about that, please. Uh, half of it was hanging out, out of the tree. That's interesting, because, you know, I, 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 this was just a few, like maybe a month ago, maybe, maybe in June, I don't remember, but recently, this past summer, I was hanging out with Dr. Meldrum, and um, he showed me a photograph um, on his phone, I guess that was sent to him of this deer. And I, 
uh, you know, there were no scale items, but he was a full grown deer. And, um, the, the rear end, like the haunches of the deer were in a tree. I, I'm guessing maybe six or, you know, eight feet off the ground or something like that, you know, not too high, but a little bit. And, um, the, the haunches were shoved between the, like the crotch of this tree. And then the rest of it was hanging down, but right up, right above the haunches, like in the gut area, the, um, the animal had been ripped in half and like the front part of the animal was touching the ground. There was a stretch of maybe two feet or a foot and a half or something in between the front part of the animal and the the, the back part of the animal <laughs> that was stuck in the tree. And like, you could see all the guts and intestines and whatever else stretching between the two halves of the animal. Um, but again, that's another example of something like, uh, you know, the, the something being shoved in a tree and kept there, you know, by a Sasquatch. And some people, oh, that's mountain lion. That's complete garbage. There were no scratch marks or not. This thing was ripped in half. So it's not surprising they would show the same behaviors as a mountain lion, you know, putting their prey up in a tree or whatever to keep it away from whatever else, uh, coyotes or whatever. But this thing was, it was just the most phenomenal deer kill I've ever seen a photograph of. And a little disturbing actually, but you know, I don't mind disturbing. That's where these cattle were. They weren't. They weren't bitten. I mean, the necks were broke because we did check the necks. The necks were broke. Uh, whatever it was, tore the hind hind uh, legs off of it. I mean, wow. ripped the legs off. Took everything, you know, everything inside the the uh, animal out. All right. We didn't. Even, we just found the guts. We didn't find the heart, the lung, or nothing like that. We just found the guts. And there's there was three of them in this field that were killed. And one was in a tree. I have the video. It's really disturbing. And there's also a couple, there was also a couple uh, twists, tree twists in this area. How Which, big and how high up? Uh, we're looking at about, about my head length, about six foot, about six foot. I'm going to say about uh, three inch. Uh, like I, said, I got the pictures. I got the video of it all. Uh, I documented everything on that. Plus, also in this area too, if you go back about a mile, we, you'll run into what I call a boneyard. There's all types of animals that were been eaten, and it looked like it just been torn apart back there. What kind of bones? Deer, cattle, or... deer. We got calves. We got uh, coyotes. I found a cat, raccoons, uh, a couple possums. You know, like I said, some deer. Uh, found some birds. Anything fresh? No, no, no. I'm going to go see one of those here in a couple of weeks, I think, down here where I live. Been hearing about one I'm up by Bluff Creek, but that, that's a pretty common report, you know, finding those boneyards like that around squatch activity. And uh, you hear a lot of broken trees around, right around the immediate vicinity also. And this, this boneyard... Now it, it's a it's a perfectly ten foot circle. Yeah, is there anything like you see? So it's a ten foot circle where all this stuff is dumped. Um, is there anything at the center of the area, like a place where this thing might have been sitting and just tossing bones aside as they ate little, or something? Or there's a fallen tree through it. Oh, okay. Maybe that was something that was sat, sitting on. Uh, now I did find we did find um, we went in there. We got run out. Something screamed at us back there, and I mean it, it just. Sound like something out of hell. I mean, it just sends the shivers up your back. And uh, what it was, we found a cat shoved into a 
hollow tree. Okay. House cat? Yeah. I mean, it was stuffed into a knot hole. It was a pretty good-sized knot hole. It was stuffed in there like something had pounded in. Oh, golly. And that's when we got uh, that vocal. And it was real close. I mean, it was terrifying, the vocal was. Matter of fact, Rodney was with me, and he asked me, what was that? And I said, you got to ask? I think we better get out of here. And uh, <laughs> on our way out, uh, we don't know if this thing had actually beat us to the top or there was another one that was at the top because we got another vocal at the top while we was coming out of this place. And uh, we just kept walking. And, uh, of course, Rodney, he, he had to be, he had to do something really crazy. He took got a big rock and rolled it down the hill. <laughs> I mean, it just, this, these things just went ape crap. I mean, I just told him, we just got to get out of here. <laughs> and he did, too. I mean, it was blood curling, the, the, the scream was. You got to stay next time, Tom. It just You got Rodney pushing in front of the, the charges. Yeah, maybe they'll shove Rodney into a knot hole and you can knock him like that. I hope not. I like Rodney, but but, but yeah. be a good thing to document. You've been listening to part one of Cliff and Bobo's interview with Kentucky researcher Tom Shea. Part two will drop next week at the same time that Cliff, Bobo, and Tom are appearing at CryptidCon in Lexington, Kentucky. And that's Saturday, September 7th and Sunday, September 8th. Also appearing at CryptidCon will be David Politis of the Missing 411 series, filmmaker Seth Breedlove of Small Town Monsters, Kentucky researcher Charlie Raymond of the Kentucky Bigfoot Research Organization, and Dr. Jeff Meldrum. Get your tickets now at CryptidCon.com. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Bigfoot and Beyond. If you liked what you heard, please rate and review us on iTunes. Subscribe to Bigfoot and Beyond wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Bigfoot and Beyond Podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Bigfoot and Beyond, that's an N in the middle, and tweet us your thoughts and questions with the hashtag Bigfoot and Beyond. 